Hello, Freedom Pact. I am delighted to welcome you all back for episode 40 today. We've had some outstanding guests the past few weeks, and today is no different. Today on the show, we have got Dr. Loretta Bruinen. Loretta is the founder of the Inner Mammal Institute and a professor at California State University. Loretta is the author of major neuroscience books such as Habits of a Happy Brain and The Science of Positivity. Loretta has been featured in major publications like the Wall Street Journal, like Forbes, like Psychology Today, Dr. Oz, just to name a few. This is a wonderful episode with Dr. Bruinen, which will help you build some sort of control over your mammalian brain. So why should you be interested in this episode? I will explain. (laughs) So essentially, we've all inherited chemicals, oxytocin, serotonin, endorphin, and dopamine. These four chemicals, they are always in continual flux within our brain. This episode will give you an insight into many practical lessons from Loretta that include what these major chemicals are and how we can use them. We delve into questions like antidepressants, when they are useful, how to use them. We delve into Loretta's idea of victim goggles, which I highly recommend listening to. We delve into Loretta's ideas on gratitude, focusing on your locus of control. And if you listen throughout, Loretta gives practical frameworks that is talked about throughout most of her work. So overall, I thought it was a thoroughly enjoyable and informative conversation with Dr. Bruinen. And I hope you guys enjoy it as much as I enjoyed being a participant in it. So, without any further ado, Dr. Loretta Bruinen, welcome to the Freedom Pact. So, Loretta, welcome to the show. Hi, nice to be here. <laughs> so, a very interesting place where I'd like to start is that I noticed on the inside cover of your book, Habits of a Happy Brain, that you paid tribute to David Attenborough by oh, saying yes. <laughs> that he told the truth about the conflict in nature. You know, and as an avid reader myself, I don't think I've ever really noticed a book that that started in that manner. What was there about Attenborough's work that, you know, led to you paying tribute to him in that way? Um, I'll tell you, but first, I, I you know, I, I, it's an amazing coincidence that just as you were asking me the question, um, I was uh, I was thinking about um, books, other books to recommend, and I already had you know my ideas, and then I just thought, oh, I should I should recommend Attenborough's biography. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what my comment meant, so. Evolutionary biology and a field called ethology, which is the study of animal behavior, that's been around since the late 1900s. 
And over the years, it's been observed that animals are very competitive. And all through human history, people lived alongside wild animals and observed them and saw that animals were very competitive and could be rather nasty. And today, in academia, which is my frame of reference, they are selling the idea that animals are empathetic and cooperative. And it's just not my idea of science to to spin information to fit a pre-existing agenda. And so one of the few sources of the truth in, in my world was Edinburgh. Mm, yeah, that's, that's, that's very interesting, you know, and, and it's great that, you know, you use him from an academic point of view and that goes hand in hand with his, you know, environmental concerns. So it shows that he's doing such great work on all sides. Yes, yes, although the, yeah, um, and uh, by the way, the, uh, his biography is um, yet a third side, which is the technology that made it possible to capture this information. And what was so interesting to me is that he was very instrumental in developing it. So it's not just um, that he's a talking head, but he was uh, a really big mover from the very beginning when it took like a week or two to to get to the rainforest that he developed the technology i think that brings us nicely to to say to sort of kick this off in regards to in regards to flowing on from from this intro in the book this the book is habits of a happy brain which was one of your earlier pieces so in the book, you talk about these major neurochemicals. So we've got dopamine, serotonin, endorphin, and oxytocin. So I just, I just want to, could if, if you could just give us a sort of like an elevator pitch type of these for our listeners, please. Sure. So what I do in my work is I explain them from an animal perspective because they're the same chemicals in animals managed by the same basic brain structures. And in the human world, we have a cortex that um, abstracts. And so we don't understand the chemistry of our impulses until we see how it works in animals. And then we could see like, oh, yes, that's exactly what we're feeling. So dopamine is the expectation of a reward. And how we define expectation and how we define reward, we could go on about that endlessly, and my book does it very simply. But it's so easy to see from a monkey's perspective. So if you're a little monkey and you wake up in the morning, nobody's going to feed you, you have no refrigerator, you have to look for food. So you look around, and when you see something that you can eat, it triggers your dopamine, and it feels good because that tells your brain that a need is about to be met. So in the modern world, when it's so easy to get food, then we don't get quite as excited about it, um, although you know we all have our variations in this matter. But we're all looking for ways to turn on that sense of excitement that I'm about to meet a need. And what it really takes is a step closer. So with the monkey, each step closer to the piece of fruit stimulates more dopamine. And then as soon as the monkey gets the fruit, the dopamine stops. 
And that's the complicated and frustrated aspect of life is this sort of up and downness that comes from what in nature is the natural constant need to get more food. Now, um, and get more mating opportunity, if I may say. <laughs> um, now, um, another happy chemical, endorphin, this is something a lot of people have heard about because it was one of the first ones that was discovered, and it is chemically basically the same as opioid, morphine, heroin, etc. The popular example is what's called runner's high, but in nature, this chemical is only released when you're injured, when you're in real physical pain. Not just injury, but also hunger. So physical distress triggers it, and um, we are not designed to injure ourselves to create endorphin. So in the state of nature, it helps an animal run when it's bitten by a predator. So you've seen on Attenborough that an animal's flesh could be torn open and yet it can still run. So that's what um, endorphin masks pain with a euphoric feeling. And some humans are tempted to stimulate it, but it is not recommended. And what I explain in my books is the other ones we should try to stimulate, but this one we should just be glad we have it for emergencies, although laughing stimulates a little bit, so laughing is highly recommended. <laughs> so um, the next one, oxytocin. Uh, some people haven't heard of this one, and some people are in the oxytocin fan club because it's called the love hormone. And... Um, in animals, it creates the urge for a herd. So when an, an animal is with its herd, it can lower its guard, it feels safe, oxytocin is released, and in the human world, we call that feeling trust. So it's a sense of safety when you're surrounded by individuals that give you a protected feeling. And when an animal leaves its herd, its oxytocin falls, and that motivates it to go back to the herd. But the reality is that being with the herd is darn annoying for reasons that are obvious. And so there's the other chemical, serotonin. And this is the complicated one. So animals are competitive, and serotonin is released when you're in the one-up position. And that's what an animal needs to have confidence in its ability to reach for that piece of fruit because there's always some other individual near it who might see you reach for it and they might bite you. And if you were always afraid of getting bitten, then you'd starve to death. So the animal brain makes judgments about when to reach by constantly comparing itself to others. And this is how we humans drive ourselves crazy in otherwise safe lives, by constantly comparing ourselves to others and looking for that chance to be in the one-up position. Hmm. So that's a very short introduction to the neurochemical facts of life. It's, it's, it's very interesting, um, the way you put that, because I think back to, I mean, if, if I'm taking a you know, a stance where I know nothing on this subject and I'm just given the information I was given in school, for example. Um, one, of the, one of the things that we were always taught in school um, was about serotonin. And I remember our PE teacher would always say to us, you know, when you go for a run, that produces serotonin. And, and every, 
Yeah, but this it's it's funny because the 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 facts we were always given was serotonin. And that's what people talk about. So yeah, and that worries me a bit. <laughs> kinds of stuff gets spread around and repeated <laughs> but if you know and, and and again it's hard now to get animal studies on this because um all unpleasant behavior of animals has suddenly become taboo even by the very writers who initially documented the behavior uh, and i'm thinking primarily of franz deval who studied um uh, conflict among chimps in a book called Chimpanzee Politics, um, and now is of the um, is promoting um, ape empathy. Yeah, it's it's interesting because I've also listened to you uh, before say that you've taken a a slightly different stance on how you would define serotonin in regards to other academic circles. Could you just uh, talk about your stance on oxytocin, uh, not oxytocin, my bad, serotonin? <laughs> sure. Um, and just to uh, mention that it's all explained in my first book, which is called I Mammal, How to Make Peace with the Animal Urge for Social Power. <clears throat> now, animals are hierarchical, and that's what Attenborough um, acknowledged in all of his earlier work. And it's very shocking to people and rather unpleasant because everyone wants to think that the state of nature is progressive and that we could return to some progressive bliss by tearing down our society. And so people like to think that animals are egalitarian. And a hundred years of research made it clear that animals are very hierarchical. They have strict status hierarchies and the survival of their genes is advantaged by uh, raising their status. Um, And the advantage is not huge, but it's enough that every extra ounce of energy an animal has after finding food, it invests in raising its status And the funny example is with chimpanzees. Um, I always explain, someday I want to make this into a comedy routine. Um, Chimpanzees, female chimpanzees, well, let's say male and female. So they only have sex when the female is actively fertile. The males are just not interested otherwise. And the females are only actively fertile once every five years. And so the males spend that five years fighting with each other so that they're in a position of dominance at the crucial moment. And that's what gives them reproductive opportunity. And we are descended from individuals who manage to find a mate. Just thinking about this, so say, if we try to give a real uh, life example. So am I right in saying that if I am part of a sports team and... I say I mess up one day in in training, and the sports coach and my my coach in front of my 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 teammates he shouts at me, and you know and he sort of ousts me. Would that then have an impact on my serotonin because suddenly you know I'm you know I've been cast outside my oxytocin because I don't feel the the trust, and also say my dopamine because now suddenly I'm not expecting to 
getting the team. Would I be right in saying that? Yes and no. It's very individual. So each of us responds to a situation in ways that are shaped by our past oxytocin experiences, our past serotonin experiences. Um, So I'll go into your example to see. So when the coach puts you down, then in that moment, you may feel a loss in status. And yes, therefore, um, that's what I call a cortisol experience. It's a survival threat because your genes will be wiped out forever if you fall in the status hierarchy, okay? Um, But whether, so that that, um, bad, cortisol is like metabolized in like an hour. And so you, you get a bad feeling and you don't get a good feeling. But one minute later, you could tell yourself, I, I don't have to base my identity on this one coach's opinion. And you could either say, I know I'm good at soccer. Or you could say, I don't need to be good at soccer. I'm just doing it for fun. I'm good at other things. Or you could say, you know, I, I'm happy with my place in the world. I don't need to be a superstar. And so, however you explain it to yourself, you have a choice. Uh, and which choice you make is likely to be shaped by your past serotonin experiences. And what I mean by that is if you in the past had a parent, a neighbor, a, a sibling who was very insulting to you and constantly demeaned you in the way that that coach did, then that built a pathway and a small experience is going to have a bigger response because neurons connect when they're activated repeatedly and neural pathways get paved from the repeated experience of youth because we have more neuroplasticity then. Um, Then a more optimistic view of it is When you were young, if you had respect from many sources and you had a positive self-image, then, again, you're not going to have as big a reaction to that coach. Now, that's just the serotonin part. Now, very quickly, I'll just mention, so what about the oxytocin part? Well, you may be cast out of the herd, but you may not because it may be that you are now more popular with other people who are pushed around by that coach. And bonding around common enemies is the most common type of bonding in the mammal world. So maybe a couple of other guys who are on the bench, who are on the out that coach, will now be nicer to you and you'll have more oxytocin because of that experience. Now, dopamine is based on goals. So again, you choose how you interpret it. So are you going to say to yourself, I'm terrible at everything, I give up? Or are you going to say, I'm going to try harder at soccer? Or are you going to say, I'm going to try harder at math because I'm not good at soccer? So it's how you interpret it shapes your dopamine. Wow. So essentially it all comes down to the stories which we tell ourselves and how we interpret these events. So is this why things like, say, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, why the principles which it teaches in that have become so popular? Because it, it shows people how to sort of rewire their interpretations. Yes, exactly, exactly. Um, but one thing that helps to know, and I explain this in my books, is 
how much our interpretations are shaped by the neural pathways we build from past experience. So if I'm feeling bad and I tell myself something positive, the positive things feels fake and not true because it's not a big pathway in my brain, whereas the negative thing is already a big pathway. So that's how I explain in my book how why the size of the pathway matters so much and how that came to be and how we can change it. What, what, what are the problems with having these happy chemicals, Loretta? Is it, is it that they're always in flux? Oh, good question. Every one of them has a downside. So they're in flux exactly. They're not designed to be on all the time. Our brain evolved to promote survival. It did not evolve to make us happy. So the default state is not happy. The default state is like running after your next meal. <laughs> so the chemicals are only there as a reward when you take that step to meet the need, which could be food, it could be seeking mating opportunity, and it could be protecting the young because those are all the core parts of keeping your genes alive, which is what your brain cares about because your brain is inherited from the genes of the people who did that. So, oh, I was going to say, so each of them has a downside. So the downside of dopamine is what we call habituation. So an example would be if I'm thirsty in the desert and I'm out of water, then a tiny bit of water will make me happy. But if I have unlimited running water today, it doesn't make me a bit happy. So our brain habituates to what it has, and it only rewards you with dopamine when you meet a new need, which is why people drive themselves crazy over new and improved. Now, the downside of serotonin, we, we know that um, we long for the one-up position, but then if you overdo it, then you make enemies, you get into conflict, and then the conflict creates injury in the animal world. And in the human world, you can find yourself sort of shunned, and that will kill your oxytocin. Now, the downside of oxytocin is herd behavior, is the idea that I'm so afraid of leaving the herd that I will go along with anything they do. And the downside of endorphin is people who injure themselves in order to stimulate it, which includes people who exercise to the point of injury, people who starve themselves, and people who injure themselves. Because our needs typically are so easily met now, do you think that that, say, contributes to, you know, elevated levels of, say, things like depression, anxiety... Or, or do you think that maybe it's, maybe it's a case of, say, you look back like 500 years ago and there's no real data to, you know, to, to, to compare it to? So are we any less happier now? <laughs> what do you think? Oh, that's a fabulous, fabulous question. And there's so, <laughs> so many answers to it. Uh, the first, I totally agree with what you're saying, that, that people were depressed in the past and anxious. And there is no good way to get it, but people work very hard to maintain their composure despite terrible threats. Like, imagine you're stuck in a cabin all winter and you might freeze to death if you run out of firewood, not to mention food, and you're stuck with all of these people 
around you and all you could do is maybe play a few tunes on your fiddle or something and then if someone gets sick and dies like they just die in front of you this is how life was for millennia so it's people having it so easy today and when I say so easy interestingly it's not just food but also it's you know what I might euphemistically call mating opportunity (laughs) because um for most of human history nobody would let you near their daughter unless you could support a baby because babies came there was no birth control and if you had a baby without being able to support it that was pretty sad and the baby just cries and cries for food and then before you know it there's another baby so um it was not so easy to get mating opportunity in the past and so now people have their core needs met so easily that they find it hard to motivate themselves and um so that brings us to the question, though, of are people really depressed or is this, you know, to me, there's a large component of media bias that the media is um, exaggerating this. And um, we all see things from our own perspective. And I was a college professor for most of my life. So I blame college professors and um, teachers like they reward students without doing the work and then they profess a very negative ideology which revolves around critical theory which is just being angry at society is all you need to do and people end up with a a very nihilistic perspective Mm. so so in an instance say where someone is genuinely depressed would the purpose of be taking, say, things like antidepressants, SSRIs, be that they take them and then it allows your brain to uh, maybe open up where, you know, you could look at, say, someone like your work, you could look at, say, CBT, and then that allows you in that window to be able to create new neural pathways? Yes. Um, uh, so, yes and no. Um, When I say yes, I love your use of the word window. That's what I always use. Um, And it's a good idea if you use it as a window. Mm. But many people do not. Many people think that it's just a cure, like taking a pill for something, and that's going to fix it. And the risk of that is that um, our brain does habituate, and so it may... um, not work as much over time Uh, basically if you're still feeding yourself negative beliefs that the world is against you and everybody else has it easy and you have it hard and it's all so unfair then you're going to continue to not produce these chemicals naturally and uh, if you need more and more medication over time you get more and more side effects And then when people try to withdraw from these meds, they have a very, very hard time. And even one warning that I'd like to add, you mentioned SSRIs. There's a new one called SNRI. I have to see if I remember that. Um, 
uh, S-S-N-R-I. I don't know. I forgot the exact. I can't think of it right now, but it has an N in there. And the N stands for, um, I think, noradrenaline. So this is not only artificially boosting your serotonin, but also artificially boosting your adrenaline, which can lead to anxiety. It's not a good idea. And um, I, it can have very, very um, anxiety-provoking effects in the long run, I think. Uh, I, I mention this because readers have written to me with this, and one of them put me in touch with a Facebook group about it. So um, I think those are especially risky. So these SNRIs and artificially boosting things like serotonin, is there a point where you would recommend someone take it? When should someone consider an option like that rather than jumping at their say straight away? You know, you could say, well, if you've tried everything else, but, you know, most people, they don't try other things because they say they can't. So it's this belief that you can't try anything else. Um, many people are surround, surrounded by a kind of negative thinking and many people get rewarded by negative thinking. So we get rewarded, we get respect when we think negatively, we bond when we think negatively, and we often then expect rewards. So we expect rewards from being negative. So we think, well, if I stop being negative, how am I going to get a reward? So this is the subject of my book, The Science of Positivity. Yeah, and this this brings us perfectly, I suppose, onto what you're talking about there. And I think you use the term in the book, crisis goggles. So could you talk about how, how this sort of, um, how, as you just said, how there are benefits to, say, thinking like that? Yeah, thank you for bringing that up. So um, the examples I gave a moment ago were more personal. The crisis goggles are more on the societal level. So when you watch the news... They are constantly feeding you an endless parade of crisis. And you can easily connect to others by having that sense of crisis. You could feel important by sharing this sense of crisis. You feel important when you attack people in power and feel like you're smarter than them. When you attack them, I mean emotionally and verbally. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And... You can even have your dopamine thing, your sense of reward with your crisis mentality because if you say, we're all going to hell in a handbasket, so what's the use trying to blah, blah, blah? And that's a form of prediction. And dopamine is all about prediction. Your brain wants to make successful predictions. And many people think, if I try... I'm going to fail, and then I'm going to be disappointed. So if I predict that I'm going to fail and blame society, well, then I can have an accurate prediction. I can feel important because now it's not it's not my fault, it's society's fault. And I can have the oxytocin, the bonded herd feeling with other people who have that mentality. Yeah, so essentially, I think what you're saying is that Say if I start gossiping to one of my one of my friends about say another coworker that may may not like that person. So is the 
oxytocin kicking in by there, which would release some sort of like connection type feeling, as in we're bonding over, uh, you know, gossiping about someone else. Is that is does that come into play there? Yes, yes, exactly. And the gossiping could be about a third party, like the friend who just left the room. But very often it's hierarchical, which means two workers talking about their boss. And then when you get together with your boss, well, you can bond by talking about his boss. So we we love to um, gossip about an individual that we perceive as having more power over us. Yeah. So if I'm trying to, say, break these neural pathways, these these habits which I've created, which which aren't serving me, say, say gossiping and, and, you know, these this crisis goggle lens, which, which I just love that idea that you talk about and I think is so apt in modern society. How long would it take me if I was working at her effectively, doing the methods which you subscribe, which you prescribe? How long would you estimate it would take? Great question. Well, in my book, Habits of a Happy Brain, I talk about 45 days. And this is controversial, I know. um, And we could debate it, but people seem to like it. And people seem to be very motivated by the idea that if I repeat something for 45 days, I can build a new pathway. And it's sort of counterintuitive because why would you want to repeat something if it doesn't feel good on day one? And so when you understand the reasons, then it helps you get motivated. I mean, there's, there's so much food for thought here. And I imagine that the listener right now, their number one question at the moment would be at this point in the conversation is, how should someone go about healthily breaking and forming new neural pathways? Great question. So first, I suggest being very specific because I explain it like carving a new trail in the jungle. If you try to carve a different trail every day, they're just going to grow over and disappear and all your work is for nothing. But if you walk the same trail every day, then that trail will establish itself. So if you choose a very specific new habit that you want, then you have a better chance of doing it. Now, which one do you want? Well, you... Um, want to think about which of the happy chemicals that you wish you wanted more of and think of a healthy way of getting it that you can repeat within your own power so you don't have to blame the world for not stimulating it for you. But before that, I always recommend start a project that's easy for you just to prove to yourself you could do it. So take the neural pathway that you're already good at. I'm sorry. Take the chemical that you think you're already good at and try to um, build a new one with that. So like if you're very goal-oriented like me, like um, dopamine, then um, just think of a new, a new dopamine habit instead of your old one. If you're already think you're sort of an oxytocin person and like social bonding, but think of a different way of doing that. And if you're already a kind of a competitive serotonin person, think of a different way of stimulating serotonin just to prove to yourself your, your own power of building new pathways. That, that, that's, that's really interesting. So from what you just said, Blair, if, say, I am more dopamine-oriented, would I be more likely to, say, 
uh, have different types of of addictions or bad habits than if I was, say, oxytocin-oriented. Is that right? Well, yeah, but I I sort of see it as a chicken and egg thing. It's like if you already have the habit, (laughs) that's why you're more (laughs) dopamine-oriented. So what came first? So I think the habit... it's, it's really one and the same. Mm. You know, the, the habit is the chemical, is the pathway. <laughs> and I think our early experiences are, are very significant in this. And I'll give you a personal example that was so mind-blowing to me that, that I started, uh, that helped me understand these things. So um, when I was young, um, I, um, I didn't... My mother didn't let me choose my own clothing much. And then when I was in sixth grade, I had to take a sewing class. And my mother brought me to the sewing store. And I had to choose, like my school assignment was to buy fabric to to make something. And my mother just went off and did her own thing and let me choose my own fabric. And so I loved sewing, but it wasn't about the sewing. It was about my freedom to feel my own power, to to shape my own choices rather than always being controlled. So a lot of the things that matter to us come from sort of random early experiences. Another one I explained around the same age. My mother died, uh, I'm sorry, my mother's father died, and she inherited a tiny bit of money, and she wanted to buy a new carpet for our rug, and so she asked my opinion about which rugs I liked, and she had never asked my opinion before, and so I just got this joy of choosing, like just choosing colors, and I noticed like, whenever I get to choose colors, it gives me a good feeling. And there's nothing, no higher cause. It's just random experiences trigger our chemicals and build our pathways. So so that example which you just gave there, I assume that that would then spike oxytocin because of, say, the trust which your mother would, which, it, which, he, which was implied in that uh, conversation. Is that right? Oh, uh, uh, good point. But... Um, it was not enough to um, build trust with my mother. I had already had so many years of non-trust that I that that didn't build trust. What it built was trust in myself that I can escape from my mother's depression and trigger my own good feelings by going to a fabric store and looking at fabrics. <laughs> Uh, I I wonder I, I wonder since since we're on this sort of path uh, since we're on this sort of topic that we've spoken to a lot of people we get we get emails we've we've spoken to people on the show that talk about just these habits which just seem so difficult for them to break and and I think that they like like for example like we had Dr Gareth Ward on the show who is a you know a very you know a very successful physicist. And he talked about how he struggled with things like pornography. We've had people talk about struggles with gambling. Are, are there things which are just more difficult to break than others, do you think? Um, 
going to just say no before I start waffling. Mm. <laughs> and the reason, so there's a concept, I, this is controversial, but I, it's, I call it victim Olympics, which is to say, well, my struggle is harder than your struggle. You know, and that's really the classic mode of discourse today. And in fact, that's how you get into Harvard. That's how you get into, I don't know, is that how you get into Cambridge and Oxford these days? You write an essay on how hard your struggle was? Because that's what American universities are doing. And that's what people do. That's how they um define and that's serotonin the sense of pride so if i have a bad habit then that hurts my pride but if i say well my habit it's harder to break than other people's habits then that restores my pride i'll give you my my apologies for you know i'm sure i've offended everybody who thinks that their habit is special but i'll just give you an example like let's say people who um, struggle with alcohol versus people with drugs, then they have a big debate over my struggle's harder, no, my struggle's harder. So which drug you're on, then you debate, well, this drug is harder to get off than that, dr- that drug. Then people who are in alcohol treatment, then they have these big wars over this treatment versus that treatment. And then within the two schools, the two major schools of treatment, then they have big wars of like subgroups within those treatments. <laughs> so this is what mammals do. What is it about this, my struggle is better, um, harder than your struggle? Is it, you know, a coping mechanism? Does it make people feel better about um, about their struggles to know that they're harder than others? I, I don't quite understand um, sure. where that mentality comes from. Sure. So um, the serotonin thing comes from, uh, oh, I, I could almost tell you the exact Attenborough episodes. <laughs> um, it's, I, I, I don't, I'll distract if I go look them up, but <laughs> I have them on my website. It's, oh, it's called Social Climbing Monkeys or something like that. So the urge for the one-up position is not, excuse me, don't think of it as a societal abstraction. Think of it as a moment-to-moment thing. So in each moment of our day, our mammal brain is comparing us to the guy next to us and saying, am I stronger or am I weaker? Because if I'm stronger, I can reach for the banana. If I'm weaker, then he'll bite me if I reach for the banana. He'll bite me if I reach for the mating opportunity. So I have to restrain myself. So obviously, it feels good to be in the one-up position. But then a few minutes later, the banana's digested, and you got to get another banana. And then you got to compare yourself to the guy next to that banana. So all day, every day, we're comparing ourselves to others. And... We focus on our weaknesses rather than our strengths because that's what can get you killed in the state of nature. And I use this example in my book, Tame Your Anxiety, where I have this friend, when I see her, like, I, I, I notice that she has a thin waist. Because I have a very thick waist, and my eye immediately goes to her thin waist. Now, she has very thin hair, and when she sees me, she says, wow, your hair is so thick. Like, she's seen me dozens of times, and every time she notices that I have thick hair. So, she's focused on her weakness, and I'm focused on my weakness. Um, And so, that feels bad. So, people are always looking, but that's, that's maybe considered friendly, you know, to be humble. 
and to bond with other people by putting yourself down. But then we feel bad at the end of the day. So we look for ways to put ourselves up. So the more you feel bad about a particular habit you have, the more you need some way to put yourself up in regard to that habit. So that's one whole answer. Now, the other whole answer is that academic psychology has a current trend on personality type. And that's getting tons of research, tons of funding, and everybody wants to know which type they are. And that's feeding this whole idea that my type has a harder time with X, Y, and Z, with every possible topic, whether it's a good habit or bad habit, it's harder for people of my type. Yeah, and that makes sense because just thinking about it you know if if someone releases a book telling everyone that they a bad habit isn't necessarily their fault then that feeds into that victimhood which you talk about yeah exactly exactly and if anyone's interested i did write a book on this which is called um how i escaped political correctness and you can too <laughs> yeah, we'll 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 definitely link to to all of your work, your work uh, below, Lewis and me. We can we can stand by the the books which we read, which which everything will be in the show notes, and they were just fantastic. I just wonder if we could go into a if we're just looking at things from say like a hyper practical point of view. So say from these from the neurochemical point of views, because. When when it comes to dopamine, um, I I notice in your book that you say to celebrate the wins, you know, and and I took this and what I did was was I created a I didn't just have a to do list, I had a completed it list. So every time I would complete a task, I would put a big tick, and I would really instead of just moving on to the next task, I would really start to think about that task and and start to applaud myself for it. And it would make me want to to do more. So I'm just wondering if you've got any other tips in regards to the other hormones from a hyper-practical point of view about building on the chemicals. Yeah, that's great. It completed it list. I really like that. And uh, another one of the complications when we say to celebrate the wins is, well, how do you celebrate? If you celebrate with you know, let's say food and alcohol, then that can have bad consequences. But if you celebrate by being proud of yourself, then people may criticize you for being self-important. If you celebrate by waiting for other people to pat you on the back, then you may end up bitter and resentful because they may not do it. So so it's really kind of a high art of how, how do you celebrate the wins. And as you said, it does leave you more motivated to then do the next thing. And I found in myself, then I could, you could sometimes go into overdrive, like, oh, I'm so excited that I got this done, that it makes me want to do even more XXX. So what I've determined is the ultimate reward is downtime. I mean, this may not apply to everyone, but it applies to me. It's like giving myself downtime is really what I want, and I rarely take it. Now, I know there are other people who write to me about procrastination, and they give themselves too much downtime, so we have to really balance our reward-seeking with our downtime. And um, some people get... um, they feel down when they have downtime. 
And that's understandable because when your brain is not triggering reward, 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 then all of the bad like memories of the coach who insulted you rush up and all of our awareness of our mortality rushes up. And so we can think of that as a useful skill that even if I feel bad in my downtime, I'm building the skill of managing those feelings now when I'm in a good mood so they have less power when I'm in a bad mood. So that's just one idea of it. Then another one, um, in my book, Tame Your Anxiety, I call it um, fill your pantry, um, stock your pantry with anxiety tamers of like having a whole list of things that you enjoy doing that you can reward yourself with that are actually healthy. The example you just gave there, the the rewarding yourself with downtime, which which, which one would that would that fall into dopamine? Oh, that's good. Um, so here's a fascinating thing. It's not a specific one, but it's my body's ability to have reserves of dopamine, serotonin, oxytocin, so that they're released in the appropriate moment. Those reserves depend on the health of my body, especially my sleep. So we produce them when we're sleeping, and if we're not rested, then we just don't have a stock of them to release. So that's one whole part of it. Another is um, I talk about a lot, you know, our neural pathways, and uh, they require repair, actually. Um, it's, it, I mean, it's, I hate to say it, it's gross, but um, like... I, I talk about the insulation on our neurons, and I, I, I hate to suggest like diseaseifying things. So, I'm not really going to go there, but I'm just saying that we need sleep to repair our bodies and our brains, and um, rest is one aspect of that. For sure, for sure. And I think to myself, um, there's there's something which which I'd always wondered about. There's the where I see her a lot because obviously we're in the personal development space and there's always this sort of um, like picture which goes around it. It's like an Instagram thing. It always says uh, like ways to feel better. And it always said like plan a trip, but don't take it. And I never knew, what, you know, I, I this always baffled me. I always thought, why on earth would anyone plan a trip and, and not take it? And then I read your book and... and and when when what when you said the dopamine was released in the anticipation, and then I thought yeah. myself, ah, oh, it makes sense now. <laughs> well, it does, but I have to say that um, I have never read that. Mm. Um, where where have you read that? Well, it's it's yes, it's all all around. You know these these ah. unsolicited Instagram pages. I mean, ah. so I'm, I'm not sure what you think well, about it. Find that a little bit of a like a um, a reinforcing that that loop of I never get what I want. It's not worth going after rewards because I'm not going to get it. So I would I would definitely say plan a trip and take it, but enjoy the planning um, so that you get more of the advance anticipation. 
so that now that makes a lot more sense yeah Be, uh, because instead of not taking it you know you it would make sense to just sort of raise the anticipation as you said that that makes perfect sense so just going back to say the the, the practical point of view so if we looked at dopamine by there what would a practical tip be for say serotonin okay uh, and by the way, just quickly, I want to say anticipation is a kind of a double-edged sword. Um, so one one example would be a person who meticulously plans every bit of their trip. And then when they go, they're sort of bitter because things didn't work like clockwork. Another example would be if I'm going to plan the most fabulous meal and I spend a whole week shopping, analyzing recipes, cooking, smelling the smells, and then some things go wrong, and um, you can think of all the examples that things could go wrong, but basically within two minutes we've ingested enough calories to meet our needs. Mm. So um, so all of this anticipation has to be managed. Now, let's go to a serotonin example. And that's a great question because this is really the hardest one. So first I point out to people, you know the cliche about Eskimos having so many words for snow, that we have a lot of words for the serotonin feeling. And some of them are good words and some of them are bad words. And we use the bad words for other people and the good words for ourselves and our friends. So the good word is pride and the bad word is ego. So the good word is I want respect. The bad word is I want attention. But the bottom line is we all want social importance and we're evolved. Our brains look for it because mammals look for it. And in biology, they call it social dominance. And you can research social dominance. It's a very well-researched um, behavior. Now, how can we get social dominance? Well, if you go around acting too important, then you may get bad feedback, you may get um, disappointed because you won't get that importance. So what the strategy I always suggest is small steps is very important. So if I'm always taking small steps to social importance, then I'm always um, triggering a little bit. So I don't have to see myself as a rock star and then get bitter when I don't become a rock star. Because we all know that rock star, being a rock star doesn't make you happy. So it's the steps on the way um, and to take little steps all the time. Another one is I don't believe in, there's a lot of sort of spiritual ideas going around right now that says that ego is evil. And that you should always be fighting your own ego. And I don't think that's healthy. I think that your inner mammal feels like you're trying to kill it when you say that you shouldn't have an ego. So what, what I think is to understand that the ego is part of your inner mammal and therefore you have to manage it. But, you know, it's like if you have a, a pet... You, you want to take care of it, you also have to manage it, but you want to be nice to it also. And the final thing is 
again, don't wait for the world to applaud you. You have to applaud yourself. And the simplest example is um, I love reading science biographies. And I've observed that almost everyone in science did not get applauded while they were doing their work. And often they never got applauded in their whole life. And it was only after they died that their work was appreciated. And yet we are benefiting from what they did. So I just tell myself people in some time in the future will benefit from what I did. They may even applaud me. So I'm going to just not worry about it and applaud myself right now. It's fascinating what you were you were saying about anticipation and uh, just expanding on what Joe said. I did actually, funny enough, I read on Twitter. I think it was yesterday. Um, it was a quite. It was a tweet that was going viral. It said, "I've been to twenty different countries around the world, and the best trip I ever took was the trip to New York with my friends that we never actually went on." I thought that was quite amusing. Um, but uh, yeah, in terms of anticipation as well, I remember a while ago I read a 12-step book on recovery and on addictions and they interviewed um, a man with quite a severe gambling issue and he found that in, in, in his bad habit, anticipation was actually um, what was feeding it because he found that when he placed, for example, a, a wager on something, the best feeling didn't come from when that actually came in. It was the thought of it actually coming in. And he said that sometimes when the bet actually won, he felt disappointed almost that he couldn't experience that anticipation for longer. Wow, yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's exactly how the brain works. And that's exactly how every one of us is with our own particular source of joy and um, I'll, I'll give you a great example this is in the book of what we can do about it um, and if I remember correctly I got this from the book Flow <clears throat> or I may have assembled it from a few different books so if you have that song that you love and you feel so good when you listen to that song but you know that if you listen to it every minute of every day then pretty soon it's just going to wear a groove in your brain and it's not going to turn you on anymore um, but if you listen to a new song then that doesn't turn you on either so what we need is to sort of invest effort in new songs so that gradually over time you will get to love a new one while the before the old one wears out. And that's sort of like always be developing new hobbies, new activities, new goals, new friends, so that when you sort of have been there, done that feeling about one, you can shift to another without getting to the point that you have to abuse any one of them. Exactly, exactly. And and I think that at this point of the interview, I think that one of the most impactful bits of, of the book, which I personally would love to talk about, is this idea that you talk about called the pay habit, P-A-R-E. I wonder, could you talk about this? Because this, this just blew my mind. It, it was just one of those ones, it, it felt like you just pull literature to an idea, which uh, it, I just, I just, I really related to this bit. So much. So, um, uh, just to repeat, it's pair your negativity. P A R E is 
stands for personal accountability and realistic expectations. So the idea of personal accountability is um, I can feel good about my own steps instead of just feeling disappointed that the world isn't celebrating me. Each step that I take, I can say, oh, I have the pleasure of choosing my next step. I can never be absolutely sure that I will get a reward. Every step is uncertain. But if I don't get a reward, then I have the pleasure of choosing the next step after that. So I can always find pleasure in that instead of, again, um, feeling negative about things, quote-unquote, not working out for me, which is a generalization people tend to make. Now, realistic expectations, again, was the idea. Uh, I mention in the book a lot of, this is in the book Science of Positivity, a lot of these um, researchers who spent years and years and didn't get any recognition and had very important findings, and that's sort of the norm. That's realistic. What's not realistic is to expect the world to celebrate you all the time. But that's sort of the culture today. Like the idea of victimhood is, well, everybody else is being celebrated. Why not me? It's so unfair. And um, it's fascinating to note that the people who do become celebrities are not famous. So what is going on that people want to be famous yet knowing so well that celebrities are not famous. And the interesting answer to that is that even monkeys want to be famous. And the proof of this, I can't remember which book I talk about this, but they did a study where monkeys were willing to exchange food um, for the opportunity to look at images of the leader monkey in their group. So it's that um, urge for attention. Yeah. What, what, what I love about this idea is this personal agency idea. Is it, it, it took me right back to reading um, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People by Stephen Covey, where he talks about that whole circle of influence and the you know circle of concern versus circle of influence. And and what I what I took from it, it really highlighted that idea for me. Where you remind people, you know, there are only certain things that that you can control. And 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 I loved when you talked about it in the book that you know you said that other people are, are not responsible for for you know for how you feel. You know, you you have that. You know, you have that power to 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 control the things which 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 are, are in your locus of control. Is is that the idea behind the pay thing to focus on the things within our own locus of control? Exactly, exactly. And um, it's really hard to know exactly what your locus of control is because on the one hand, you may not see that you had an impact until very much later, especially if you're a parent. <laughs> you know, you, you think that your kids are not listening to you, and then 10 years later, you see that they are mirroring. Um, and then the other thing is um, uh, your locus of control may be um, subject to illusions because of this change the world mentality going around where people 
want to feel like they can see themselves tearing down barricades. Otherwise, they don't feel like they have control. So it's it's important to be realistic. One thing I wanted to ask you about, um, and this is something that uh, our last guest, Amy Morin, that we released today, spoke highly about. Um, she spoke about the importance of gratitude and positivity and how they go hand in hand. Um, and I wanted to ask you, in your experience, how powerful has the practice of um, uh Sorry, how pra- how important has the practice of gratitude been in your experience for acquiring positivity? Is that something you share as well? Um, uh, well, um, and for everyone who's doing this, good for you, hooray. Um, but this is not my thing, and I'll explain a couple reasons why. Um, often gratitude practice focuses on things that are outside of your control, like the sun is shining and I have a puppy. Well, actually, I shouldn't say that because a puppy is within your control. (laughs) Um, But um, people often focus on things that are outside their control, and and that's good. But what I did that worked for me was um, to find a positive every morning of something I'm looking forward to. So, you know, it's so easy when you wake up in the morning to think, oh, I got to do this thing that I hate, and then I got to do that thing that I hate. And then when you have a free moment, your brain goes to, maybe this one is mad at me, and maybe that one's mad at me, and what might go wrong, and what is disappointing. So to force myself to keep looking for something positive and... um. I I guess I don't see it the same as gratitude because if I'm going into a meeting that I I think, oh my gosh, this is going to be so boring and I'm so tired, and then when I walk out of the meeting, so I just always try to think, okay, so what's one positive thing about that? What's one positive thing about that? So that's just my practice. I see that. That's so interesting. So you're not waking up in the morning and saying... You know, I'm grateful for my house and my car. You're, you're grateful. So essentially what you're doing is you're, you're sort of bringing the dopamine, the anticipation in, and you're saying, okay, like I'm looking forward to this and this and this. And that makes a lot of sense to me. I get that, yeah. Yeah, and also, again, trying to focus on my strengths versus my weaknesses. So um, uh, my everyone has their own particular, you know, challenge so my challenge that is i think common to many people is like a fear of people being mad at me like you know you say hello to someone and then 10 minutes later you're like are they mad at me you know mm. so that's what i struggled with many years of my life i'm a lot better now but um so that's it's when you have a negative thought whatever the person's negative thought to find a positive way of challenging that particular thing which may not have to do with your house and your car so what did you do in regards to to overcoming that sort of maybe self-consciousness where where you're thinking is that person mad at me what what was the what was the 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 rationale because i know personally like things which happened which helped me because I noticed that very early on I had a sort of very black and white way of thinking. And I remember I stumbled upon the ABC model of 
of sort of taking it out of the emotional brain. What what was it that helped you in that um, in that process? Um, well, a lot of things, but I would say the biggest one is to understand that this is a huge neural pathway in my brain. That when I was a kid, that my mother was was rather emotional and rather disturbed, and screamed a lot to, to just put it in plain language and she would scream at whoever was there so often I was there so she would just appear and scream at me so I built a circuit that's always anticipating like like anything I say could go horribly wrong like when she would come in and scream at me I would have not the slightest idea what I did it could be something that I said yesterday or a week ago or a month ago or something I didn't say. Uh, so it was so unpredictable and it created this. And in creating that negative circuit, I never create, maybe this is the important part, I never created the positive circuit. Like I never knew what it was to, to have a good relationship going on with somebody. I really never grew up with it. Like I never grew up with saying, oh, so we're good, you know? They may agree or disagree with me on this or that, but we're basically good. So once I realized, oh, I'm just creating this myself because a, a giant pathway is created by early threats. And if you think of like every child in the state of nature had to learn not to touch fire. So once you touch fire... It creates a huge pathway in your brain, and then you never want to touch it again. So we're we're learn we're we're designed to learn from pain. So so I learned from pain to just fear everybody being mad at me all the time. <laughs> um, and once I realized it was just a circuit, then I knew that I just had to build new circuits. So one strategy I used for that was this is just a very simple example: making eye contact with people I'm ch when I check out at the supermarket um, because, you know, that's a choice. You don't have to make eye contact with them, and if you do, they may make eye contact with you or not. And I realized that if I – often I wasn't looking at them, and if I did look at them and they didn't look back at me, that that would trigger my whole fear circuit, and that helped me practice mastering that circuit – in a safe place where I knew it wasn't about me. And then soon I built a new circuit, what, which was these people are so happy to have someone being nice to them during their long work day. So that's all you need is just a positive way of framing it. I absolutely love that answer. And that is a perfect way to start winding down now. And um, we want to get in just before we let you go. We want to get into three major questions that our audience have come to they they really love these questions and they'd get angry at us if we didn't ask them so if i get into those uh the first one would be what rules do you love to break okay um well one i i, I had two of them because i couldn't narrow it down um one is um, that you have to listen to the news and stress over the news and that you have to, this is like called empathy where you have to be upset by the news. So I don't do any of those. <laughs> so, um, and another one is um, 
there's this new thing about um, altruism where you have to pretend that your main interest is in saving the world. So I just, you know, whenever people ask me about that, I, I, I never say that I want to save the world because I feel that that's, it's, it's really selfish and self-important and grandiose and then it leads to bitterness because then then the world doesn't change and then it, it's it's I think it's kind of selfish to everybody wants to change the world their way and I just instead of pretending that I'm trying to save the world I just say everybody wants to make the world their own way and I'm just doing what everyone else is doing mm. that's a really refreshing answer and um another uh question our listeners love is obviously you are a very rena- renowned author yourself, um, but we want to flip Ronis' head and ask you, as a reader, are there any books that you've read that have greatly impacted your life up to this point? Oh, thank you so much. Um, well, as I mentioned, chimpanzee politics really impacted me, even though I don't like any of the later stuff of the author, but it's the subtitle, Chimpanzee Politics, Power and sex among apes Um, and then every species of primate has a different book just like that Um, so there's one about monkeys rather than apes it's called Macachiavellian Intelligence so it's like Macaque Monkey and Machiavelli put together Macachiavellian Intelligence and then a great book um, that combines all of this, it's called Sociobiology, and it's every different species and what their behavior is. And it's not riveting reading like the others, it's more like an encyclopedia, but it's just mind-blowing. And then I just want to mention that David Attenborough's autobiography is called Life on Air, and very enjoyable. Loretta, where can our audience find you on social media? Um innermammalinstitute.org innermammalinstitute.org oh I, I'm sorry I, that's on my on, that's where they can find me on the web that's my website innermammalinstitute.org then I'm on Facebook and Twitter and um, it's innermammal on Twitter and on Facebook I'm Loretta Bruning PhD perfect and this brings us on to our last question it's been an amazing interview and the last question is that if you could distill your life lessons, your message down into one short but impactful message to the world. What would your message be, Loretta? Nothing is wrong with you. And that's because our brain is not designed to release happy chemicals all the time for no reason. They turn on in short spurts and then they turn off. So we all have ups and downs. Wow, what an answer. That was amazing. Loretta, I hope you've enjoyed your your time on the Freedom Pack podcast. I mean, Lewis and me, we're looking at each other and we just we've just been blown away, you know. Thank you for creating such a such such great work in your field and we hope to do this again sometime. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I would love to do it again and I really really appreciate your great questions and um, thank you for um, having such prepared and specific questions. I like it.